Father, we ask that as we come to your word this morning, as we have already worshipped you well, Holy Spirit, would you be present and would you help us to continue to do so? Father, help us to engage in, in worship of you, our God and our King, our Lord, our Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within us. Father, take the busyness and the anxieties of last week, this upcoming week, help us to set them aside and would you give us the ability to focus our thoughts and our attention on you? Jesus, we want to we know you in a deeper way. We want to understand your word in a more powerful way. So we ask that you would come and that you would speak through me despite who I am. Draw us close. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Esther chapter 6, uh, starting at verse 1, reading through the whole chapter of verse 14. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him saying, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden on, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, But Haman hurried to the house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before him, whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Isn't that a beautiful chapter? 
Not so much for Haman, but for us looking back. What an incredible chapter. Um, A.W. Tozer said, uh, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has heard him deeply. And you see in the, the preceding chapters leading up to this morning's message where God in his governing and ruling from the shadows has deeply hurt his people. We saw it, we saw it conveyed in chapter 4 and then again in chapter 5 where, this, where there was this unbelievable fasting and mourning and weeping and wailing. Because of the decree that Haman had issued, thus saying, in one year from now, all people of the nation of Israelite shall be annihilated. Man, women, young and old, children as well. And so we see this quote that Tozer says, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And many of you sitting here this morning, you, you are intimately aware of what that means. You are intimately aware of, I have experienced the heavy, hard, uncomfortable hand of God in the past. And if you've come out on the other side once or maybe 15 times that you've experienced that, you will more, most likely say, I am thankful for what I went through. It was so incredibly painful and it hurt and it was hard and I thought that God had abandoned me. But I later learned and was reminded once again that he was governing and ruling from the shadows. Last week we looked at just three simple points, three life-altering decisions. We saw uh, that we were reminded of three truths otherwise. The beauty and meekness uh, and patience that was within Queen Esther. And how she, was, how she went before the king and the king asked her, tell me what it is that you want. Remember she had said, I will go before the king and if I perish, I perish. And she went and the king honored her and he didn't put her to death. Instead, he promised her, tell me what it is that you want and I will give you anything up to half of my kingdom. And we saw this beauty and this meekness and this patience within her. But then we also saw in a completely opposite display, we saw the misery of pride and idolatry that existed at Haman. And I hope you remember what I said at the conclusion of that point. And I hope that you said it with me. I am Haman. I wish I was like Queen Esther. I wish I'd... I wish I modeled and emulated patience and meekness. But I'm so full of pride and I am Haman. I want to be honored uh, as we see in today's passage. And the third thing we looked at was the, uh, a further contrast of the two kingdoms. We saw how King um, Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, had this ability with the scepter, either to, to point it at them in a, in a motion of death, I did not invite you into my presence, or he could hand it to them 
to be touched, extending them a scepter of grace, saying, you are welcome. And we talked about how our God, our King, is one who comes to us where we don't have to tremble coming into his presence. He welcomes us with great love and tenderness and care. And he reaches out with that scepter of grace through his son. This morning we're going to be reminded in this passage, we're reminded of an awful lot, but I'm going to just look at three things that serve as reminders for us. The first one is that in this chapter, fundamentally we see that God's providence is alive and it's well. And we need to cling to that truth most desperately when we sense that he's gone and he's departed and he has left us and he has forgotten about us. God's providence is alive and well. Uh, What is providence? Nathan, we're going to skip. Nathan is doing this for the first time this morning and so I'm throwing him a curveball already. We're going to skip a couple slides here. Uh, What's the definition of providence? We're told that Providence is the protective care of God or of nature, of a spiritual power. One pastor suggests the following, when I use the word providence, I mean that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people. It's strange sometimes to us, and we don't understand it. It's mysterious. We don't see it. And so by his doing it frequently, over, under, around, through, or sometimes in spite of us, our lives or even the bias of our wills, that despite us, despite somebody else's intention or will for us negatively or perhaps even positively, God still governs and rules all things We may say that providence is God's orchestrating all events and circumstance in the universe for his glory and the good of his people. The earliest, one of the earliest, not the earliest, but one of the earliest and more uh, well-known passages in scripture where we see God's providence. We see a man who was banking on God's providence was in Genesis chapter 22 where he had taken his son Isaac because God had commanded him, take him up on the mountain and sacrifice your son. And we're told in verse 28, where he says, or I'm sorry, in verse 8, Abraham said when answering the question to his son, God, where, dad, where's the, where's the animal? We forgot something. And God whispers to his son, God will provide for him himself the lamb For a burnt offering, my son, God will provide. And so we see in this text, in verse 1, on that night the king could not sleep. If you remember what had just taken the day, that day or that morning, Esther comes into his presence He chooses not to have her murdered. Instead, he chooses, I will give you whatever it is that you want up to half of my kingdom. And she, with great discipline and meekness and patience, she doesn't just blurt out, this is what I need and want. That man is going to kill our people. Instead, she says, may I cook a meal for you? And they have the meal 
And again, King Xerxes asks her, please tell me, Esther, what is it that you want? And again, with great meekness, she says, and great discipline and patience, may I hold a feast for you and for Haman in your honor? And so the day before the feast is to be held in God's providential care, even though it appears he's ruling from the shadows because he's not mentioned in the text, the king could not sleep. And then you have to acknowledge that it had to be God's providential ruling within him as the king who had everything in the kingdom available to him. He could have had over a thousand different women, any one of a thousand or multiple if he had chosen, bring them to me, I can't sleep. Go get me something to drink. Maybe I will drink myself into sleep, into a, a stupor. Instead, because we see and we trust and we believe that God is orchestrating all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, because he's orchestrating all things, he gave orders to the two eunuchs who were in attendance of him, bring the book of memorable deeds. Now, who in the world does that? Who wakes up in the middle of the night and says, Encyclopedia Britannica, here I come. He had anything available to him. And God ruling this pagan king who's in the hands of a sovereign God leads him to read something and to remind him that there was a man who saved your life and he hasn't been honored. And so we see and are reminded that God's providence is alive and it's well. Um, Further evidence of God's providence in this text is somebody just happens to walk into the outer courts. Could have been any one of the officials, but in God's providence, as he's considering how can I honor this man who saved my life by telling a story? How can I honor him? In God's providence, Haman walks into the outer courts. And he asks his eunuchs, who, who's out there? Bring them in. In verse 6, we see in God's providence, upholding the passage of Scripture and this biblical notion of pride comes before the fall. In verse 6, And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Can you, can you picture for just a second what was going through his mind as he was seeing himself having the king's clothes put on him. As he saw himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Now we have this in hindsight, but you look back, God providentially kept uh, Esther from pointing the finger at Haman because he was setting up a plot that would further destroy Haman and his decree. God providentially shut the lips of Esther until the proper time so he could lead 
providentially governing and ruling Haman down a path where he would be forced to demonstrate his great pride. Has God ever done that to you? I know he has me. Has God ever brought you to a place where you have become so full of yourself that his intent is, before I lift you up, I'm going to hurt you a little bit? And we see that in Haman. The second thing that we're reminded in the the life of Haman in this particular chapter is that outward obedience does not lead to interchange. Oh, how I wish it did, but outward obedience does not necessarily lead to interchange. You've all heard the story of the mother um, who disciplined her child sitting on the the airplane because the child just wouldn't stop bouncing around in the airplane. And she was scared to death that everybody was going to be mad and she potentially would get kicked off the flight at the the layover with the next stop. And so she eventually uh, put the seatbelt around her, tied her hands down, and so she couldn't move. And the little girl just sat there smiling. And the mother said, why are you smiling? Why are you laughing? I can't move on the outside, but on the inside, I'm dancing. And as parents, um, we often get to a place where we look at our children and we say, you know, right now I don't care about your inner spiritual life. You are going to stop what you're doing or I'm going to beat you. We'll deal with your heart later, but right now we're going to deal with what specifically you are doing. And we're reminded in this text, in Haman's behavior, outward obedience does not lead to necessarily lead to an interchange. What poetic justice. Imagine the unbelievable fall in the weight that came down upon Haman as he's listening to how the king wants to honor the man that he delights in. And he's just bathing. And he can hear the angels singing hallelujah to Haman. And then the poetic justice, this incredible irony, this, dare we say, Uh, a delicious irony. Haman, I want you to do everything that you just said. Ah, He's waiting, he's waiting. I want you to do it for Mordecai. And at that point, Haman had an opportunity to make a decision. Do I do as the king has instructed or do I push back? Do I fight? And although it didn't, it didn't matter much in the end, as we'll get into in the next chapter with Jim next week, but in this chapter, what did matter was Haman did obey the king. But we can't lose sight of the fact, although he obeyed the king, although he went through this outward religious effort of obedience, there was absolutely no interchange um, do you know what the interesting thing is in Scripture? Is uh, God doesn't always deal with us that way. And I hope once again that you will conclude like I, that, that I am a man, I am a woman, I love to be honored. 
I want to be thought well of by everyone. Do you know what we're told that the, that the second thing that most people think about when it comes to their eventual death, it's either a close second behind or it's equal or in some cases it's more. But the, the second thing that is right there, the first thing when it comes to our death that we think about the most is, I wonder how I'm going to actually die. And is it going to be painful? I don't care that I die because I get to go be with Jesus, but is it going to hurt? But the thing that is almost as most prevalent in our mind is, I don't want to leave this place because I don't want people to forget about me. I want to be thought well of. I want to have a great legacy. I want people to remember me for years to come. And the truth is that very few of us in this room could actually name the name of either our own grandfather and grandmother or our grandparents' parents. It doesn't take many generations and we are forgotten about. And we see here in Haman this longing desire, I want to be honored. We're reminded in Scripture that God doesn't always deal with us the way he does in Haman, with Haman. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see after a two-year period where King David defies God and will not repent, will not take ownership of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And the prophet Nathan comes to him in God's providence because he's governing and he's ruling. And he says to Nathan, this is what somebody has done. And David replies with these words. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done all of these things, he deserves to die. (laughs) And he shall restore that lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Prophet Nathan was able to usher those beautiful words to David. David, you are the man. And grace was extended to David. And he wasn't immediately killed. He lost a child. But God's grace was abundance, in abundance to David. To Haman, not so much. Haman is going to get what he deserves. And the poetic justice and the irony of that is almost too much to fathom. We see in Haman, in his pride, uh, what Jesus was talking about when he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Haman was a man who only thing he thought about was myself. I just saw this early, early this morning, hence it's still on my phone and not in my notes. But a friend of mine that some of you will recognize, Candy Jarvis, put this on Facebook. Uh, it's something that she had copied from something else, and it says this. If I am ever murdered or kidnapped, please don't make up lies about me. I do not light up a room. Everyone doesn't want to be my friend. People don't automatically take notice of me. I have a smart mouth, 
and I probably really only have two friends. You tell 2020 that. Don't make up lies about me. We see this beautiful contrast in those words versus what we see in Haman. And we're reminded, even though he went through the outward um, obedience and he did what the king had commanded and he walked Mordecai through the city streets crying out, this is the man whom the king delights to honor. But we're told immediately afterwards that he went back home mourning and crying and wailing and lamenting to his friends and to his wife. Here's a third thing in this passage we're reminded that our clothes have changed as well. We're reminded in this passage that our clothes have changed as well because something happened. What an unbelievable honor that King Xerxes bestowed upon Mordecai who outfitted him with the king's clothing. I want to do a little compare and contrast here. As Jesus was walking up the hill to be crucified, he did not wear the rightful clothes of a king, but he went almost naked. Whereas Mordecai was mounted on a royal horse, which itself was crowned with emblems of royalty, Jesus had to walk, carrying the weight of a cross. The only crown in sight on that day was the crown of thorns, than his enemies had made in order to mock him. Mordecai was proclaimed publicly as the man whom the king delights to honor. And as you know, all around Jesus as he was crucified was mocked ruthlessly. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. There was no public honor for Jesus on that day. And because of what he did, going backwards for men like Mordecai and going forward for men and women like you and I, because of what he did on that day, our clothes have changed. The clothing that I'm referring to is this, what, what we're told about in Isaiah 61, who was prophesying This is coming. This is going to happen. When he said, Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For those of us who are in Christ, who have repented and placed our trust in our faith in him, this great exchange took place. Where Jesus took our filthy, sinful rags upon himself, and he bore the weight of his father's wrath. And then in return, to replace our ugliness and our sinfulness and our nakedness he gives us back his robe of righteousness and so we see this beautiful metaphor of this real life event that took place where the king reclothed the one that he wanted to honor and it's because the father who deeply hurt his son but then lifted him up and raised him from the dead 
and seated him at the right hand of the Father because he's the one that the Father wanted to honor. And then consequently, secondarily, you and me. And he has placed this robe of righteousness on us. Romans 13, 12 and 14 tell us, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. All of those things we just saw in King Xerxes and how he ran his kingdom We saw it in Haman. And if we're honest, we say, they're in us. They're in me. And Paul is pleading with us, walk properly. And how do you walk properly? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you're in Christ, your clothes have changed. The Father doesn't see you the way he used to. Three points of application really quickly. Um, First point is just simply this. Rest in trust in God's providential care. Somebody said believing in God's providence is where Christian growth hits the rubber mat. Either we believe that God has abandoned me to myself and I have to figure this out on my own or God in his great care, even if we're responsible for getting us into the position we're in, God in his great providential care comes to us. And so rest in that. Secondly, scrutinize your inner change. In Matthew 15, we're told, Jesus says, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. In other words, it's not the the outward obedience that matters in God's economy. What matters to him is what's going on in the inside. And so as your pastor, I'm pleading with you, scrutinize, examine your inner change. Because the truth is we often need to enter into a season of repentance. Haman refused to do that. May God in his grace, we won't enter into a season. May may we, by his grace, enter into a season of repentance and then run to his grace. So rest in his providential care. Secondly, scrutinize your own inner change. And then thirdly, live faithfully. As you rest in his grace, that doesn't mean laziness. You rest in his grace, but then hand in hand, they're, they're, they're friends, they're kissing cousins. They're, it's good. Live faithfully in the new clothes that he's provided. First Timothy chapter 6 tells us, Timothy, the mentor to the young pastor, Paul, the mentor to the young pastor, Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, O man of God, Flee all of these things that I've just talked about. Flee them, run away from them, but then run to, run towards, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. He's pleading with Timothy, his protege, run towards righteousness. 
that's running towards the righteousness that's already been clothed to us and then hand in hand progressively it's running in righteousness allowing him to live through us and then lastly as we live faithfully in our new clothes Jesus reminds us through Peter Peter tells us Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree not for just good fire insurance but he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Rest in it. Scrutinize your heart. And then live faithfully in the righteousness that he has so abundantly wrapped around you. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your care God, we ask that you would help us to believe it. We ask that you would help us to rest in it. Father, there are so many seemingly insignificant things that happen in our lives that we either don't see or we dismiss. And so I ask that as your people, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand that you are governing and arranging and organizing and orchestrating all things in our life for our good and for your glory. God, help us to believe that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.